You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Everyone, welcome back to the midweek edition of the 1208 Pod Pod Podcast. It's a thing. And rather than go back and re-record what I just said, we're just going to go with it. So we're moving through the Bible. And today we find ourselves yet again in Genesis. Uh, We've talked about creation. We've gotten into all kinds of subjects. And today we're letting that subject continue to take us forward beyond the sixth day of creation and into the seventh day where God rests, otherwise known to us today as the Sabbath. So uh, let's take a look at the passage, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is an important passage for several different reasons. We're going to try to take a look at two of those reasons right now. The first one being this. So often we get caught up in, like, is creation a literal story or is there other ways to read it? We kind of talked about that when we talked about evolution last week. Um, But people get kind of caught up in that conversation so much that they miss some of the basics of, of what's going on here. And uh, part of the other reason we miss the basics is because we're thousands of years removed from the time that this was written. If we had been around uh, closer to the time that this was written, we would be well aware uh, that uh, this is a temple story. So when you look at other um, near ancient Near Eastern uh, myths and creation stories, uh, you often find that there is this... Uh, common theme in them. And uh, uh, scholar John Walton points this out. He's an Old Testament scholar. Uh, but he he makes this, this very firm point, like rest is often uh, a motif in which the God of these creation stories take rest in a temple. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm actually, I'm working on writing a book right now about uh, just all the different monsters that you find in the Bible. And I I came across a theme myself. I was looking at a Mesopotamian myth in which uh, um, all of these gods are reported to have created the world and the Mesopotamian beliefs. And then uh, after they've done this, they rest. So you see this theme show up in other religions and other uh, creation myths. But here we find God telling us his own story and because culturally, uh, God, uh, these other spiritual beings will rest at the end of their their work in order to show that they've taken up residence in a temple. Well, we have to look at this story and be like, ah, we, we can see what the Hebrews were trying to communicate when they were writing Genesis. That here on the seventh day, God takes up residence in his temple and rests. And therefore, we have to recognize that Eden is God's temple. And this is often something that we 
we just miss. We, we don't pay attention to a lot because, again, our focus is on a lot of other things. But if we believe that God is the one true creator God and that uh, our creation story is the creation story, then we have to recognize that one of the motifs that is being uh, delivered to us in God resting on the seventh day is that God is telling us his residence has a place here in the, the temple. And that temple is Eden. And you see this because you, you recognize, you know, uh, the Bible goes on to tell us uh, all the different areas that uh, are around Eden, that there's there's other lands uh, and other rivers dividing up those lands. There's Havilah, the land of gold. So there's these other places outside of Eden that are not uh, the place in which God has kind of taken up his residence. And we see some of the ways in which uh, you can see a really tangible presence of God in this space. All you have to do is fast forward to Adam and Eve, right? Because if you remember this, it's a very strange story, but Adam and Eve uh, have sinned, and now they hide from God, and, and they know they need to hide from God. They know he's coming, because why? Well, the Bible says that they heard God walking in the cool of the day. They can hear God's footsteps. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems kind of uncommon as a way to uh, tell that God's presence is is close to you. Uh, but you can see the story being told through this lens of, of presence and temple. This is God's holy space here in Eden. It's a, a place that he's designed himself and he's taken up residence here. So he's, uh, he's here. Now, People often are like, uh, well, Jamin, God's everywhere. And I've gotten this a lot. You know, I've uh, heard people throughout the years, whenever you're having a worship service and you're just like, man, I can just really feel the presence of God here right now. I've kind of heard people say to me or uh, just make general comments like, Jamin, God is everywhere. Okay. I'm like, yeah, I understand that. Uh, and I completely agree. God is uh, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He is present in all places. Sure, by all means. However, there is a specific piece of the presence of God that can be found in in more manifest ways. And the Bible shows us this clearly, starting right here with the Temple of Eden, where God's presence is so close He's walking in the cool of the day, where Adam and Eve don't just like sense an invisible force, but they seem to hear and even perhaps see this force in among them, whether that's like just a a theophany of God that is like a a physical manifestation of him of some sort, or or if it's something, uh, some other way that he's revealed himself, whatever the case may be. This right here, this story is a a story of God taking rest, God taking uh, residence in Eden, and therefore his presence is there. We see this story continue throughout the Bible um, where God takes up manifest uh, uh, forms, manifest presences in other places. So starts off with Eden, uh, but if we fast forward some, we will find ourselves uh, with... uh, the temple, the mobile tent, the tabernacle that moves along with the Israelites through the desert. Uh, in fact, uh, 
We're not going to get into it right now, but if you look at some of the wording between uh, that tabernacle being built and some of the wording between um, God creating the world, you see that the Bible writers are making parallels between God creating the world and uh, the Israelites creating the tent. Why are those parallels there? Well, it's because they know they're building a space for God. So in the same way that God built his space where he rested in Eden, now they are building a space for God to rest in this tabernacle. And while they might be building it, God's still pretty much the creator of it because he gave them the blueprints. He tells them how he wants it laid out and all that. And then after this temple has been made, you see this foggy presence of God, this this cloud, this glory cloud, if you will. It comes and it invades this tabernacle that they've built, this this uh, little this tent for God to dwell in. And now they know that God's presence is inside of this tent. And it's a it's it's a very powerful place to be, so powerful that uh, no one's allowed to go into the Holy of Holies because that's where God's presence is especially manifest. And since we're imperfect beings, if we were to get too close to that, well, we might just die. And so uh, they often had to send, uh, well, once a year, not often, once a year they would send in the high priest or the pope is maybe a better way to think of it today. They'd send in this one guy, the holy guy, the guy in charge of everything, to go in to the most sacred part of the presence of God to meet with uh uh, God and make atonement for our sins. That right there is called the Day of Atonement. Uh, but I bring that up to show you that the presence of God has moved from a manifest place in Eden now to a manifest place in this uh, in the side of this tabernacle. Uh, you move forward and you see that uh, this tabernacle isn't treated as sacred as it once was. Uh, and even though that's sad, it does show us an interesting story in which uh, Samuel, the prophet, comes in contact with God's presence there. When Samuel's a young boy, and it says that God uh, hasn't been speaking for a long time, nobody's heard from him in a while, uh, when Samuel's a young boy, he finds himself sleeping in the Holy of Holies, the place where you are not supposed to get close, except for the Pope, the high priest, on that one day of the year. Yet Samuel's in here sleeping because nobody's been treating the uh, this space is sacred as it is. And while he's there, he comes in contact with God's voice after a long lull of not hearing him. And we, of course, would expect Samuel to come in contact with God's voice. If, if God was going to speak, why not right there in the Holy of Holies where uh, his presence is known and even expected to dwell? Okay, Still to prove the point of God's manifest presence coming up in some places, you fast forward. Okay, so he rested in Eden. Now he's kind of rested in the tabernacle. And now David says that he wants to build God a much better space than, than this tabernacle, than a tent. He wants God to have a permanent dwelling space. God tells David he can't build it, but he tells him that he will have his son Solomon build it. So Solomon makes what uh, is not just a tabernacle, but known as a temple. He makes a temple in Jerusalem, and that is uh, uh, the place where God's presence is now going to find itself manifest in. You fast forward again, they're having this big worship service, uh, celebrating all that God has uh, uh, done, and and just uh, this huge band, they're worshiping, they're having a 
a great time praising God when suddenly that foggy presence, that glory cloud, just like the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle and now they knew God's presence was there, that same glory cloud fills this newly built temple and now they know that God's presence is inside of this place. Now time goes by. Eventually, uh, God is going to leave this temple. Ezekiel sees it happen in a vision, and uh, and then uh, this temple is going to be destroyed, and Israel is going to go into exile. Fast forward to Jesus' time, and we have what we call the Second Temple Period. The Second Temple Period. This is when you have uh, uh, the temple that Jesus walks through, okay? So it's this huge temple. Uh, but rather than be gaping in awe at the uh, um, the presence of God in a physical space, it's so like gorgeous that you have the disciples actually like gaping in awe of the building. Them saying, uh, if you remember this passage, one of them says, "Like oh, Jesus, look at how great, how huge the rocks are that they built this place." So. We get this idea that the second temple is now God's dwelling space. We get that idea, but um, it's uh, not communicated anywhere that God's foggy presence, that glory cloud, it's not communicated anywhere that, that God has invaded this space and that he is is present there. In fact, uh, um, Jesus has uh, not great things to say about this place. He walks through it. He calls it a den of thieves. He flips tables. Uh, he is unhappy with the second temple. And then he begins to tell them, if you remember the passage, you know, like, uh, hey, uh, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the Bible tells us, like, when Jesus said that, he was talking about his own body. In other words, Jesus walks into the second temple where people think God's presence is, or they're hoping at least that God's presence will come and dwell. And Jesus comes and says, God's not here. His manifest presence is not here. And he begins to show them, actually, God's manifest presence is in me. I am where he is resting right now. So if you want to destroy the temple, you will destroy me. But even if you do that, in three days, I'll raise this temple back up. And you know, all these people are thinking, he, he really thinks he's going to rebuild a physical temple, this second temple we built with these gorgeous giant rocks. He thinks he's going to rebuild that in three days. That's ridiculous. But no, Jesus means the real temple where God is found, and God is found in Jesus. Now, while we are not Jesus and we are not God, um, God does something new with his presence when we fast forward a little bit more. Okay, so... When we get to uh, Acts, what God does is he fulfills a promise that he made in Joel that one day he would pour out his presence on everybody, uh, whether you were old or young, slave or free, male or female. One day, no matter your social constructs, your boundaries, the lines that make you different from anyone else, your race, your ethnicity— Jew or Gentile, one day Joel prophesied that God was going to pour out his spirit on all of his people. And that's exactly what happens when we get to Pentecost. And uh, uh, God's spirit is poured out on all Christians. And as they continue to make Christians, as they go into all the nations, God's spirit is poured out on them as well. 
And Paul starts to tell us that our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. We, we may not be like, uh, we may not be Jesus. We may not be God in flesh. However, the same Holy Spirit, which is God, that dwelled in Jesus, that rested on Jesus, uh, that same Holy Spirit has now been given to us to dwell in us and rest in us. Therefore, in the same way that you might have found God in Eden, in the same way that you might have found God in the tabernacle, in the same way you might have found him in the temple or in Jesus, now you find him in Christians. So wherever we go, we are the temple of God. Uh, the church, you know, so often we think of the church as a building made of bricks and mortar and and that that's where God's presence is. And God may put special manifestations in some places, you know. You go to some churches and you can just tell, like, God's presence is there very quickly. Uh, he may still anoint, like, physical places, but his real anointing is on people, on human beings, the, the people who he dwells in, who are known as Christians. So if you want to come in contact with Eden today, if you want to come in contact with God, then you do it through Christians. Uh, one day it will go beyond that, right? Revelation is all about uh, the new phase of God's presence, where his Shekinah, his glory, uh, the fullness of his presence will come and dwell in a new Eden, a new Jerusalem. Uh, he will light up the world so much with his presence that there will no longer be any night. It'll it'll just be daytime all the time because God is is just so bright and so full in his presence here on the earth. That will be like the next progression beyond Christians. So right now the Holy Spirit's in us. One day the fullness of God's presence will be here in in that kind of beautiful, glorious form. So all that being said, I think the progression of the tabernacle is a very important thing to to note. Uh, it was something that uh, stood out to me in college when I was writing a paper, and it's just kind of grown in me over time to say, you know what? It We can say that God is omnipresent and that he is everywhere and sees everything, and that is absolutely true. But when we look at the Bible, we have to recognize he has ways of being more manifest or more present, or at least sensible uh, to a new degree in certain ways throughout all kinds of different areas uh, throughout the Bible. And I've given you some of the areas. There's other areas beyond that where God's presence shows up. We don't have time to get into all those conversations, so so we won't do that. Um, but uh, this is something just to remind yourself of when, when Sabbath comes around. Just Remind yourself this seventh day of the week when when I'm resting, I'm partaking in the presence of God. I'm studying him. I'm being with him. I'm letting him love me, and I'm loving him back in return. And allow that to, to become an important part of, of your time, just dwelling in his presence on the Sabbath. You know, I love what N.T. Wright says. He says that, uh, and I'm, I might be paraphrasing here, but he talks about how, like, um, temple, like Eden. The temple of God is like God's space, but Sabbath is God's time. And so if we want to come in contact with uh, uh, God on a weekly basis, then we we rest with him. 
uh, in that Sabbath. We in, we allow his time to invade our time, and we spend that time with him. Uh, and throughout the Bible, you're going to see Sabbath come up all over the place. Um, uh, N.T. Wright goes on. There's really this whole beautiful part in his book. Uh, let me make sure I got the right one here. Uh, Simply Jesus. N.T. Wright, Simply Jesus. This is a terrific book in general. It's one of those books that just like covers so many topics that the church needs to know uh, that it, I think it's just a one of those books that like everybody needs to read to some extent. Um, but in his book, Simply Jesus, he has this beautiful section about uh, a Sabbath, and he talks about he talks about how uh, Sabbath is kind of like a marker pointing us towards something more. You know, God works for six days and then he rests, uh, perhaps, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but almost as though like God is resting, waiting for an ultimate uh, finishing to creation or an ultimate Sabbath ahead of us. So when we rest with him, we look forward to that ultimate Sabbath. And you see different versions of that ultimate Sabbath show up, each one a marker of of a better one coming up, right? So you got the weekly rest times with God. Uh, there was also in Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, which was, uh, uh, you count seven weeks of, of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Uh, this is Leviticus 25, 8. It goes on. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to the property and uh, shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee, shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. It goes on, but like the year of Jubilee is is crazy. So crazy that you really got to wonder if anyone on the face of the planet ever truly, truly went through with celebrating it because you had to forgive debts. You had to, uh, I think you had to take like a whole year off uh, without me reading all Leviticus 25 right here. There's just a lot that went into celebrating uh, the year of Jubilee. So it was no longer just like, hey, you took one day off a week. Now we're getting into like this huge time off where you got to trust God to take care of things, take care of your agriculture because you're not going to work it and and to do uh, everything himself. It's a year to, to just uh, celebrate that 50th year. So that right there, you go from from the weekly Sabbath to now a year's worth of Sabbath every 50 years. Uh, you have this like new ultimate Sabbath even beyond the Jubilee. Daniel 9.24, uh, Daniel prophesies uh, 70 weeks uh, that uh, are coming. And that 70 right there begins to make us think of all these sevens again, which always takes us back to this Sabbath theme, this completeness in which God rested. And and the 70 weeks, it gets confusing when you start taking a look into it because there's different ways in which that you could take Daniel's uh, 70 weeks and and do the math. Uh, 
And so you end up with like maybe multiplication where it's not really 70 weeks, but it may be more like 490 years. It just gets really confusing. Uh, But N.T. Wright would say that uh, uh, when Jesus comes around and starts his ministry, N.T. Wright believes that uh, uh, Jesus says that those 70 weeks are fulfilled in him. So the ultimate Sabbath to which everything has been pointing, those 70 weeks, those possibly those 490 years, however it is you do the math, uh, there was this time after Daniel where people were waiting for the Messiah, for whatever that 70 weeks was going to be. And then Jesus in Mark 1.15 says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we've been preaching on Matthew uh, on Sundays, and two weeks ago, that was that was the exact message of John the Baptist, and we saw with Jesus. Uh, so John in uh, Matthew 3, Matthew 2 or Matthew 3, and then Jesus in Matthew 4, after he comes out of the desert, they all say, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. But Mark 1.15 has Jesus starting that with an even more explicit statement, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so N.T. Wright would uh, assume himself, and if you don't know who he is, he's really uh, one of the most well-known theologians today. He's an amazing Bible scholar. All of his books are great. Um, But N.T. Wright uh, would say that the time that's being fulfilled that Jesus is referring to is those 70 weeks, the the ultimate Sabbath beyond Sabbath, beyond Jubilee, beyond it all is here now in Jesus. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. And uh, uh, perhaps that's part of the reason you don't see Jesus uh, um, obeying Sabbath in the way that people maybe expected him to, uh, because to some extent he kind of is the Sabbath <laughs> embodied in a certain way. He you know, and he didn't even like really like break Sabbath. He just understood where uh, Pharisees were being uh, overly religious about things and missing the point of what Sabbath was supposed to be about in the first place. Uh, so with all that being said, we've looked at Sabbath today, and that's led us into two conversations. Uh, one, recognizing uh, Sabbath is to some extent about presence because that's G- that's that's God taking up his residence in his temple of Eden. That led us into all the other temples that he's been in, including the temple of our bodies right now in this spiritual phase of history. But it's also led us to recognize uh, uh, the Sabbath rest uh, is fulfilled in, in Jesus, this time in which we stop to be with the presence of God every week and to celebrate it to an extreme, to be in the presence of God for for a whole year on that 50th year, and to celebrate it even more so to recognize that in Jesus and the Messiah, after all these years of waiting, that that original Sabbath has been pointing forward to him, and now the kingdom of God is here. And one day, God's presence will come and rest in, uh, in revelation in its fullest form among us, and we will be again with uh, the fullness of Sabbath and the fullness of of his presence. So, hope that uh, brings you a whole round trip right there. You know, we're talking about Genesis, and yet we find ourselves in Revelation. That is not uncommon. Uh, it's actually very, very normal to find yourself at the end of the Bible when you're looking at the beginning. 
There's just a lot of intentional connections that your authors are are trying to put together to see the full circle of what God is doing. So that is the midweek edition of the 1208 podcast today. Hope it helps you out. Uh, to learn more, you can check out uh, somewhere in the middle of N.T. Wright's book, Simply Jesus. The whole book's good, but the part on Sabbath is somewhere in the middle. I know that's not super helpful. Uh, but then outside of that, uh, all this uh, talk about the progression of the tabernacle, I have written a whole chapter of that on my book, The Rush and the Rest, kind of showing the progression a little deeper than maybe we just did. So if you want to learn more on either of those subjects, those are some of the things that you can check out for yourself. And we will catch you next time here on the 1208 Podcast.